Well, that was great. It's great just to interact with each other and have fun, chat with each other. Those of you who are online, hello. We just had a great big shaking hands thing. Sorry you missed it, but we're glad that you've joined us. In fact, you're joining us for a brand new teaching series that starts today. And this series is called Eyes on Eternity. Eyes on Eternity. And the the that title comes from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So let me read it to you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Consider her words. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. For the believers, that shore is Jesus and being with him in the place that he promised to prepare for us, where we will live with him forever. The shore we should look for is that of the new earth. If we can see through the fog and picture our eternal home in our mind's eye, it will comfort and energize us. If you're weary and you don't know how you can keep going, I pray that this series, this teaching series, will give you vision, encouragement, and hope. No matter how tough life gets, if you can see the shore and draw your strength from Christ, you'll make it. I pray that's what you'll experience in the next five weeks together, that we'll all experience that. I think I could have seen it. If I could have seen it, I wouldn't have given up. So back to our scripture. Let's read it again. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So here's the point. The point I'm making this morning. Fixing our eyes on eternity helps us not to lose heart in the troubles of life. 
fixing our eyes on eternity will give us hope. And it seems like people need hope more than ever. Look at some of the troubling storms arising in our world. Um, I just jotted a few. North Korea and Iran are both testing how far they can send a ballistic missile. That's troubling. Chinese ships and planes are encroaching on Taiwan's waters and airspace. I find that troubling. I mean, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that was troubling when it began, still troubling today. Increasing illegal immigration in the United States has become a flashpoint politically and just a practical problem. We've got debt ceiling negotiations and deadlines in the news. We've got rising inflation and rising interest rates in our everyday lives. There's culture wars between the right and the left. There's ongoing debates about election interference in Canada. Provincial governments are facing off versus the federal government. And there's more. We've got storms brewing in politics, the economy, between nations, the storm of division within nations, and it gets personal. Sometimes those storms come into our families. So when big storms are threatening in our world, we need an anchoring hope. And that's what this big promise of this series is about. Fixing our eyes on eternity will help us not to lose heart when we have troubles. It'll give us an anchoring hope. So what kind of troubles? I mean, will, it, will fixing my eyes on eternity will help me not to lose heart when I face uh, health troubles? Will it help me when I face relationship troubles? What about financial troubles or loneliness troubles? or job troubles, or family troubles. Well, fixing our eyes on eternity help us with that. Let me just read you. I, there's three books I'm reading for this series, and I'll just tell you what they are. Um, the one that's on the ground here is Come, Lord Jesus by John Piper. Uh, this is the big, big one, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Has anyone read this book? Or yeah, You've got a copy of it, but you, you intend to get to the end. <laughs> it's thick. Um, and the other one is All Things New by John Aldrich. Aldrich. Yeah, those are the three that I've been sort of uh, digging into in preparation for this series. Let me just read you John Aldrich's uh, description of uh, the hope crisis. He said, Though we're trying to put a bold face on things, the human race is not doing well at all. We appear to be suffering a great crisis of hope. It's taking place loudly in politics and economies. It's taking place quietly in the hearts of millions at this moment. When you consider the pain, suffering, and heartbreak contained in one children's hospital, one refugee camp, one abusive home, or war-torn village over the course of a single day, it's almost too much to bear. But then consider that multiplied out across the planet over all the days in a year, then down through history, it would take a pretty wild, astonishing, and breathtaking hope to overcome the agony and trauma of this world. How is God going to make it all right? How is he going to redeem all the suffering and the loss of this world and in our own lives? Escapism isn't going to do it, no matter what religious version you choose. What about all your hopes and dreams? What about all your special places and memories, the things most dear to your heart? Is there any hope for any of that? What we ache for is redemption. What our hearts cry out for 
is restoration. And I have some stunning, breathtaking news for you. Restoration is exactly what Jesus promised. Despite what you may have been told, his main focus for your hopes is not on the great airlift to heaven. He promised the renewal of all things, including the earth you love, every precious part of it, and your own story. The climax of the entire Bible takes place with these words in Revelation 21.5, I am making everything new. A day of great restoration is coming. Not annihilation, but restoration. That is the only hope powerful enough to be for us what God calls the anchor for our souls. So God intends to give us an anchor for our souls in the storms of life. And it's meant to give us great, great, great hope. The challenge is that, I mean, this, sorry, this is the hope that has been talked about again and again in the Bible. You see, um, Peter talks about it in his letters. He says that we have a living hope that can never perish or spoil or fade. And this hope is kept for us in heaven. And um, the Apostle Paul, he wrote, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who uh, have died. I'm paraphrasing slightly. But he says, believers who have died, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed. He goes, because if you're uninformed, then you'll grieve just like the rest of everyone else who have no hope. But the intention is to teach you about what happens when we die so that you will have hope. The writer of Hebrews, he's the one who says, this hope, we have a hope, firm and secure. It's an anchor for your soul. These are all tied up in the promise of heaven. The promise of heaven. Again, I've been reading things about Tim Keller this last few weeks. Tim Keller was a, one of the most influential North American pastors probably in the last number of years, and he passed away last week at the age of 72. And he, he wrote different things about how he was so excited to be with Jesus. And uh, his son, I, I noticed his son had, had, uh, had written something, and he said this, he said, we're really encouraged and comforted as a family by some of my dad's last words. And this is what he said. Tim Keller said, there's no downside in me leaving, not in the slightest. There's no downside in me leaving, not in the slightest. The Apostle Paul, he, he, he said in Philippians, he said he was torn. He was in prison. He was in chains for the gospel. And he was writing letters. And he was trying to encourage the people who lived in a town he'd visited, Philippi. And he was writing him a letter. And he said, I'm torn between should I stay or should I go? I mean, if I'm here, he had this saying. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live, it's all about making Jesus look good. It's all about living for Christ. It's all about spreading the message of Jesus as far and wide as I possibly can. And he said, but who's kidding who? To die is better. 
to die is gain. He says, I'm torn between the two. What shall I choose? He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Better by far. I'm, I think I want to present to you a bit of a, I think there's a crisis of belief, I think, that maybe we have to have, and I, I feel, it, feel it even in my own self. Is our, are our eyes really fixed on eternity, or are they fixed on the here and now? There's a story in the, in that Paul, tell, or Paul tells this account of how he had a friend. His name was Demas. And when they were ministering together and doing all those things. But at a certain point, Demas abandoned Paul and left him. And the reason that Paul gives that he abandoned him was that Demas loved this age. He loved this age. He loved this world. He loved this life. And so he abandoned the faith. He abandoned the work. Now, I think there's nothing wrong with loving this life. But this life is a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, great joys, great wonder, incredible experiences. And then there's some pretty deep lows, isn't there? Deep sorrows, great disappointments, huge losses. In fact, someone has once said that life is just a series of saying goodbye. Saying goodbye. It's interesting, you know, you're, my wife and I have a different, uh, we have a different view on our kids. Her great joy is when they're little. She just loves those stages. And you know, when they say things that are, it's cute, but it's like grammatically incorrect, she loves that. When I hear that, I'm like, I want my kids to grow up. I want them to fix the way they talk. And so then I, I come along and say, no, no. And then Marnie will stop me and she'll say, no, no, no. Let them say it a few more years more. I'm like, no. <laughs> no. She loves, she, it's like she's grieving the loss of their, their, their youngest years as they go by. Oh, I remember when, remember when they used to say this? Remember when they used to say those things? Well, I feel like that's us with life. It's like, Oh, remember when I was young and healthy and played sports and didn't get injured every time? Remember when I didn't have to eat a banana every day to prevent cramping in bed? <laughs> Too many of you relate to that. Remember when? Remember when? And we're saying goodbye to stages of life as we go. For some people, that's terribly troubling. I mean, to face our mortality is a big, big deal. So Philip of Macedonia, he was the, uh, his son was Alexander the Great. Anyhow, he, he made it a rule. He had, a, he had appointed a servant, and his servant's job was this. Every day to stand before Philip and say, Philip, you will die. That was his job. In some ways, Philip, I guess, embraced the reality of his mortality. Maybe it spurred him on to do certain things that he thought were really important to do. Now, contrast that with Louis XIV. Louis XIV had a rule in his, in his uh, palace. No one was allowed to say the word death in front of him. Are you more Philip or Louis? 
Like when it comes to the topic of death, when it comes to the, the fact of your mortality and all these long goodbyes that eventually end in a very significant final goodbye, are you okay with that? Are you comfortable with that? The writers, the, the authors in the Bible, they said because of this living hope that they had, that, God, that because they had their eyes fixed on eternity, they saw that as the great beginning, not the great end. They thought it was the great gain, not the great loss. It was better by far. It was what they longed for. Paul said, how, he talked about how he'd, fin- he'd, he'd fought the good fight, he'd finished the race, you know, he'd, he'd persevered to get the prize and all those things. And he said, and God's got a crown of righteousness for people who live like this and for all who long for his appearing. Or another translation said, all who love his appearing. I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, in my youth group, my youth pastor taught me that, you know, Jesus could come anytime. And I remember thinking, oh no, because there's a few things I'd like to do before. You know, I'm, I was like, you know, 15 and thinking, you know, there's a few things I've heard are pretty fun. I'd like to try them out. I haven't tried them out yet. I hope he doesn't come soon. But the, the cry of the church, the cry in throughout its history has been, come, Lord Jesus, come. This life is a shadow of the reality yet to come. This, the, the best is yet to come. So how is this possible? I, when I read these things, I think, Lord, I, mean, I want you to do work in me. I want you to do work in our people. I want to be the person who says, come, Lord Jesus. I want to be the person who says that the life to come is better by far. That if I, you gave me a moment to choose, I'd choose it. I want to be there. But I have to be honest. At certain times, I'm like, man, I, I'm really hoping I can be here for a few things I'm still hanging on for. When God interrupted Tim Keller's life on earth here and began the new one, he said, There's no downside in me leaving, not in the slightest. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of Christians who were looking to Tim Keller for leadership. Um, He has a whole church network he'd started. His church in New York was, I think, the biggest church in New York, 5,000 people. But no downside to just leaving it all. Not in the slightest, because that's better by far. So how do we get there? How do we get there? It's back to our verse again. We've got to fix our eyes on heaven. Now, this is a very, it's a very funny verse that I've chose here because it's, it says, you know, look at the thing that's unseen. How can you see something that's unseen? Now, let me illustrate. When I was, I was about 13, and my brother was Paul, who I shared a room with, second best roommate I ever had. Anyhow, he was 11, and we had a bunk bed in our room. And when I was 13, I got to go to youth group. And he was 11, and he didn't get to go to youth group. So that meant I had, my life had opened up to a whole world of fun and possibilities that his life had not opened up to yet. So I would go with my two older brothers to youth group, and we would go to youth group, and then we'd have fun and adventures afterwards, which we never told our mom and dad about. And then I would come home, and from the top bunk, I would lean over and I'd tell Paul all about it. 
And I remember very distinctly coming home, and I'd watched a movie. I told them lots about movies I watched, because I got to go to people's houses and watch movies. It was awesome. And so I'd come home and tell them about the movies. And so I was telling them about this movie, and I won't tell you which movie it is, or, you know, you'll think I'm a bad guy. Anyhow, so I, I watched this movie, but in the movie, there's a scene. And the scene was about a rat. And it was such an impactful scene to me in my life when I saw this movie that I couldn't wait to tell Paul about the rat. So I got home and I told him, the, you know, most about the movie, but the most powerful scene was this scene about the rat. 13 and 11-year-old boys, you know. I know women have all checked out. Uh, but that's where we're at, right? A rat was fascinating, right? A rat was sort of like gross and threatening and interesting. And so I'm telling him about this scene with this rat. Now, oh, I was really, yeah, telling him all the details of it. Anyhow, and for me, it was the most pivotal scene in the whole movie. Over 30 years later, Paul sends me a letter. I open the letter, and in it is a picture. Paul was quite a good artist. He went to art school and all that stuff. And he's drawn the rat for me. And then he tells me, I finally saw the movie. And you know what was fascinating was his depiction of the rat he said, this is how I thought of the rat the last 30 years. That's what I pictured it based on your description. And he said, and I looked at it and I was like, that's incredibly accurate. That's actually really, really accurate to the scene that I described to him. So I thought, how could Paul see that? I mean, he never saw the rat. It's sort of like how we see eternity. The things that helped my brother see the rat so accurately is I had a passionate description and he had a healthy imagination. And that's exactly what we bring to the table when it comes, or that's exactly what helps us to see eternity and to see heaven and to see what God has in store with us. The Bible has many, many descriptions of heaven, passionate descriptions that we can read. So I haven't seen heaven myself, but God has. And he's revealed it in his word, what it looks like, and, and the things that are part of that. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the ways through. So it's a combination of God's description and our imagination. Now, I think this goes, this, there's two errors with this, I think. One is we just only use our imagination and we don't pay any attention to God's descriptions. And this is pretty common. Do you know that uh, I was reading Barna, and they say, Barna's a research group in, in the States. It says, most Americans believe in an afterlife that includes heaven and hell. The majority of Americans, that's what they believe. But they tend to use their imaginations without paying attention to God's description of the afterlife found in his word. This is what Barna goes on to say. He said, they're cutting and pasting religious views from a variety of different sources, television, movies, and conversations with their friends. The result is a highly subjective theology of the afterlife, disconnected from the biblical doctrine of heaven. There's lots of books out there about people who say, oh, I, I visited heaven, or I had a vision of heaven, and, um, you know, I'm sure there's good in some of them. But when you... When it's just your imagination and, it's, and you're not 
grounding it in Scripture, you easily get into error. You easily get into things that aren't true. I mean, if I just told you, yeah, I know what heaven, oh, heaven to me, what's heaven to me? Oh, we're all going to just, we're all riding unicorns and everyone gets their own planet to, you know, repopulate, and, you know, and um, we're just going to eat cotton candy, only cotton candy, and we'll never get sick of it. And all you have to do to go to heaven is just click your heels three times and say, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. If I told you that, and you might come back and say, well, I think heaven's like this with a totally different description. It doesn't give us the hope the Bible described we would have. In fact, it gives us false hope. It gives us false hope. One of the realities we encounter in the Bible is that heaven is not our, even though heaven, we are made for heaven. I mean, there's a person and the place we're made for. The person is God, and the place is heaven. And we're meant to dwell together with him there. That's what we're made for. But even though we're made for that, it's not our default destination. And the reason is the problem of sin. We have, we've inherited from our ancestors a rebellion against God. We've been a treacherous, we're a treacherous people. The world, the people of the world are treacherous people when it comes to God. He created us, created this good world, and then we sinned. We rebelled against him. We disobeyed him. And sin has become a corrupting influence all over the world. In fact, in Romans 8, it talks about how we groan because of that. And then it says creation groans because of that. Because corruption and brokenness has spread into all of our lives and our relationships. It's spread into, not, but it's also had implications for the planet. Disease and death and destruction has come as a result of sin. And the other thing sin does is it separates us from God. We are created for relationship with God, but God is a holy God. I mean, he's good in every way. And sin is sort of, that's the opposite. Instead of living in loving relationship with God, it causes us to live just for ourselves. That affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with others. But the main thing is it separates us from him. And so the sin problem has changed the game. There's a place we're designed for. There's a person we're designed for. But the sin problem stands in the way. And so God, in his mercy, looking down on us and realizing we could not change that. We couldn't free ourselves from the slavery of sin we are under. We couldn't uh, wipe our own guilt away by doing a bunch of good things on the other side of the ledger to balance out our bad things. We'd sinned against the creator of the universe. And so God in his mercy sends Jesus. God so loves the world that he gives his only begotten son that whosoever believes and trusts in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and what he's done. And I always say it's just two things. It's like you trust it. You, you, it's a recognition that what Jesus did on the cross was necessary. Someone needed to pay the penalty for our sin. But also that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. It was enough to pay the penalty for our sin. 
We don't need to add to it a whole bunch of religious observances to make it good enough. What, his, what he did for us, his sacrifice was good enough. So the thing is, I don't want you to get into the error of having false hope. We say, I just think heaven's like this. You, you can't live your life like that. I just think life is like this, and then it's not. Reality hits you in the face. I think heaven's like this, and then reality has a terrible response to that as well. The good news is, though, God is not willing that any would perish. He's eager to see all of us come into that right right relationship with him. So that requires us to to turn from our sin, turn from, and, and to confess it, to admit I'm a sinner, and I need someone to save me from, the, from that separation from God. I want to be with him forever. If you've never done that, let me just take a moment now. I'm going to pray a prayer. I invite you all to repeat it after me. It's just a prayer of repentance, a prayer of turning. It's the kind of prayer you could pray every day, but it's also the first prayer you could pray if you're starting a brand-new relationship with God. Can we just take a moment with this? For some of you, this may be just a, refl- uh, just a refreshing of realities in your life. For some of you, it might be a brand new reality. I pray that it would be for many of you. Let's repeat this. A- just repeat this after me. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've got the problem of false hope, you know, based on the assumption, well, everyone's just going to go to heaven. Well, that's not true because of sin. But obviously Jesus died so we could have real hope. He died so we could have real hope. I think the other challenge with this hope or the other the challenge in this is that it's not just that we have false hope, but we can have weak hope. Weak hope. I'll let John Eldritch describes it this way. He says, most Christians miss the ultimate hope for their future because their views of heaven are vague, religious, and frankly, boring. Hope begins when we understand that for the believer, nothing is lost. Heaven is not an endless life of harp strumming and worship singing in the clouds, rather the life we long for is precisely the life that's coming to us, and that life is coming soon. I think sometimes when you think of Demas who rejected Paul, he loved this age, he loved this life. And sometimes we love this life so much or too much because we can't imagine what it could possibly be. And again, it's another error of not looking at what the Scripture has said about heaven. It's not, we fix our eyes by fixing our, by reading what the Holy Spirit has given us in the Bible about heaven. And then, here's the other step, and I think this is what doesn't happen for a lot of Christians, is we don't take the second step to, to reflect on that, to meditate on that, and to use our imagination. You said, whoa, I thought imagination was the problem. No, imagination's not the problem. You know, if you just have, if it's all hyper-imagination and you're creating it out of thin air, yeah, that's a problem. But when God gives you something that is true, for you to take that and 
dwell on that and wonder about that and imagine that is good. So I think for some Christians, I think we sort of have standard lines that we would say. We say, well, no one, no one can really know what heaven is like. We just know it'll be nice and good because Jesus made it. I've said that many times myself. But there is a lot more about what heaven is like than maybe we realize. And maybe we haven't taken the time to really look through it. We're going to look through that in these next number of weeks. We're going to talk about lots of different um, questions that we might have about heaven. Here's my teaser. We'll talk about what, what is life like in heaven right now for the people who've trusted in Jesus and that's where they go when they die. What's it like for them? Do we have bodies there? What's, what, were, what will our relationships be like in heaven? Do people in heaven remember and recognize each other? Do they remember their lives on earth? Do they know what's going on down here? Will there be families and friendships? Will there be marriage and sex? Some of you weren't listening until this point in the message. <laughs> Welcome to the discussion. I know you want to know that. <laughs> what about some of the things the Bible says that we don't really... What is this resurrection of the dead? How does that event affect heaven? How will that affect us? What about this new heaven and new earth? Is that going to be like the Garden of Eden? Will there be animals there? Will our pets go to heaven? I remember years ago, when I had just moved to Moose Jaw. The guy said, I want, I want to meet you for coffee. He says, I have, you know, he had a theological question for me. I sat down across him in the coffee shop, and he said, will my dog be in heaven? And I have to give you the context. I'm not an animal. I'm, I'm not a big pet lover. Like we had, I mean, we fished pets out of the creek when we were kids. Like, we had a whole bunch of painted turtles in our basement eating lettuce and liver. I'm not sure if that's what they're supposed to eat. But anyhow, that's what we had. And we never cuddled with them or kissed them or any. Like we weren't, the, yeah, that wasn't us, right? So he says, well, my, my dog be in heaven. I'm like, no, don't think so. <laughs> then he shocked me. He said, then I don't want to go. I was like, what? So it was like two shocks at once. One, I was shocked like, whoa, does this guy not even know anything about heaven and how awesome it is? Then the second thing was like, People really do like pets, don't they? <laughs> I mean, my wife and I, we just raise baby humans, but I don't know why people would put all that effort into dogs and cats, but people love them. So I have a whole new appreciation for that in the number of years. Will your pet be in heaven? Hey, we'll talk about that. What will our bodies be like? Will we eat and drink? Will we work? Will we play? Will we study and learn? Will we create art or music or culture? Will we use machinery? Will we develop technology? Are these questions you have? What does it mean to rule the earth with Christ? That's in the Bible. 
What, is, what does it mean to see God face to face? What kind of city is the new Jerusalem? This, is one of the, this next one is one of the biggest ones I've been wondering about for a long time. Will this earth be destroyed or renewed? Is it just a never-ending worship service? We're called to fix our eyes on heaven. We're called to look at what the Bible says so that we have hope, an anchoring hope, So when trouble comes, we don't despair. We don't give up. We fight the good fight. We persevere to finish the race. We press forward for the prize. It's meant to give us a great hope in our lives. I want to give you an assignment, should you choose to accept it. Not grading the assignment or anything, but... There's a, there's a, how many of you have the version Bible app on a phone, your phone or device? Okay, it's, I recommend you get it. If you've never gotten it, I recommend you get it. It's just all sorts of Bible resources on there, lots of devotionals and Bibles, translations. It's really ha- ha- handy to have. Um, there's a devotional on there. It's just called Fix Your Eyes on Heaven. And it's, um, it's the guy who writes the book on heaven. It's his, so it's like a little short very short. It's a 12-day uh, devotional, but it's by Randy Alcorn. Fix your eyes on heaven. On eternity, thank you. Fix your eyes on eternity. Yeah, because you can get the wrong one. That's right. And I encourage you to, to check it out and read it. Uh, it'll, it's like, you know, I'm going to read 400 pages of this book, and I invite you to do some light reading as well. But I, I think the idea is that if we want God to give us this great hope that allows us to persevere like the saints in the past have persevered. Well, we're going to have to pay attention to what the Bible has to say. And so I'm encouraging you to add a little bit extra, not just to come for the sermons, come for the sermons for sure, but to add a little bit extra to your life in focusing on heaven. And I think that is a way that we honor God and what he's written in there is, is giving it just that little extra there. So let me read to you Romans 8. I'm going to close with this. And again, this is another teaser trailer, Romans 8. It says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Hmm. This is what shows up in our main text as well. You have trouble. It's troubling trouble. It's difficult trouble. It's deep trouble. And yet you compare the good that's coming, the good that God has in store for you, and you go, oh, this is light by comparison. Even though it's so difficult. This is momentary by comparison. Even though it seems like it'll never end. 
because we're comparing it to this great hope we have. Do you have that great hope? Is it firmly, is it an anchor in your soul? Let's cry out to God for that. Let's ask for that. God, give me a great hope in heaven. I want to persevere in this life. I don't want to be uh, giving up. I want to be able to see the shore that you have planned for me. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So again, our lives got way worse because of sin coming into the world. So the planet, there's, a, there's an element of destruction and disease and decay in the creation because of sin. Our destiny and the destiny of the planet, the destiny of creation, is connected. That's what it's saying. It's connected in its destructive fall. It's also going to be connected in its restoration. So creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, there's that hope word, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Do you hear how physical it is? Like if you just think it's like, oh, I'm going to go to heaven and I'll be a floating spirit in the clouds. And maybe or maybe not, I'll get to eat cream cheese. Like if it's just sort of like that non-substantial, vague thing, it's not a great hope. It's not doing much for you now. But you start reading this and you go, wow, it's like the redemption of our bodies. Not just saying the savings of your soul, which is important, but it's saying the redemption of our bodies. It sounds really tangible. It sounds really... And then also, the creation will be liberated. The redemption of a planet? Have you ever imagined these things? For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. Let's pray. Lord, would you do a miracle in our hearts? I think of Christians hiding in the catacombs underneath the streets of Rome because of persecution. How they filled the walls of the catacombs with paintings of heaven, paintings of children playing, paintings of people feasting, paintings of very earthy things and how it gave them hope and how the cry of the persecuted people going through great trouble in that time was, come, Lord Jesus, come, 
The life to come is better than the life that is now. Even though it has incredible joys, even though it has really sweet moments, there's a life to come that's better by far. I think of how it, it worked out in practical ways to people who were heavenly minded to do incredible, to give their lives in incredible ways for others and, and, and for you in this life. So Lord, I, I want to be able to say what Paul said, what Peter said, what the writer of the Hebrews said, what Tim Keller has said. Come, Lord Jesus. We look, we long for your appearing. We love your appearing. Lord, I pray for a deep-rooted reality to match these words. In all of our hearts, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to fix our eyes? Would you help us to see what is unseen by looking in what you've revealed in your word? Guide us in this. Make us a people who are on tiptoe excitement because we're not losing everything at death, but we're gaining it all. We ask that in your name. Amen. We invite you to stand again and worship with us. Christ is my firm foundation The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaken I've never been more glad That I put my faith in Jesus Cause He's never let me down He's faithful through generations So why would He fail now? He won't He won't I've still got joy in chaos I've got peace that makes no sense So I won't be going under I'm not held by my own strength Cause I built my life on Jesus He's never let me down He's faithful in every season So why would He fail now? He won't 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 Christ is my firm foundation The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaken I've never been more glad 
Just a quick reminder, we would really desire that you would join us back here at 6.30 tonight for prayer. We want to be praying for people that you love and we love that need an encounter with the Lord. So please come and do the work of coming to pray for people who need Christ. I want to wish you a great week. God bless you. We're just going to say a quick prayer and uh, send you on your way. Father, we thank you. You've never failed. You never have failed. 
And Lord, I just pray, I pray this for myself, but I pray for all of us that somehow I could just kind of push aside the veil that kind of clouds my sight with all the stuff that's happening around me, and I can look through to you and what awaits. And Lord, help us to begin to see that. Help us to do the work of the study and reading, to pursue and say, Lord, show us my future. Let us see. And we pray tonight, we're going to be praying for people who need a better future. So Lord, bless your people as we go from here. Help us to carry that dream in our heart. Um, let us be thinking about this, this week. Uh, give us time to just meet with you and uh, see what's ahead for us. Bless every person, every family. Bless workplaces and farms, families. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Do it. 